Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Judge Lee Rudofsky of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks. Good afternoon. It's great to have you here. Um, we've known each other for a long time. So I know a lot about how you got where you are now, although not everything, I'm sure. But I wonder if for listeners, you could talk a little bit about your own personal path to becoming uh, a federal judge. I am happy to, uh, and I'm excited to be here with you, Brian. Uh, We haven't gotten to see each other uh, recently, but we had some wonderful experiences uh, up in Alaska clerking for Judge Kleinfeld. I actually have on the uh, wall of my chambers, a great uh, sort of old-timey picture we all took. So I'm glad to be here with you. Um, in terms of sort of my route, I guess, to the bench, uh, after law school, I uh, stayed in Boston and did a clerkship uh, at the state Supreme Court um, in, in Massachusetts, obviously. Um, I then did my clerkship with Judge Kleinfeld with you up in uh, Alaska for the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, I then came back to Washington, D.C., which I had spent a summer in between uh, years in law school, um, and I worked for Kirkland & Ellis. Uh, I worked for Kirkland & Ellis, I, I may get the exact amount of time wrong, but for somewhere like four to five years, although uh, it was punctuated a couple of times. I I went off and I did a couple of campaigns. Um, Then I came back. I then went off and did a couple of more campaigns, um, eventually ending up uh, being the deputy general counsel on uh, Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. Uh, Came back to Kirkland and Ellis one more time. And I should say, Kirkland, I really did, you know, your basic kind of complex commercial uh, litigation, a bunch of constitutional law, some environmental law, some administrative law, um, uh, but a sort of good mix of trial and appellate work, uh, all on the civil side. Um, When I came back to Kirkland the last time, uh, I worked there for a year, and then I got a really great job offer uh, to come down to Walmart uh, in Northwest Arkansas, And I worked, the name of the job was the Assistant General Counsel for Corporate Affairs and Public Relations. And essentially what I was, was the lawyer to our press folks and our government affairs folks. Uh, I did a lot of, you know, looking over statements we made to make sure both that they were legally accurate and that they wouldn't get us into any hot water Um, things of that nature. So it was less a litigation position and more of a real corporate advisory legal position. Um, uh, After being at Walmart for a while, uh, Leslie Rutledge got appointed attorney, or not appointed, she got elected attorney general of Arkansas. And she and I had worked together when she was at the RNC and I was working on the Romney campaign. And thankfully she hired me as Uh, Solicitor General uh, for the state of Arkansas. That was a great job. And until this job, that was actually the best job I've ever had. Uh, It was a lot of fun litigating 
um, at the state Supreme Court, the Arkansas Supreme Court, and in the Eighth Circuit. Um, and while I never ended up appearing at the Supreme Court, uh, litigating in the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court as well. Um, after that, I went back to Walmart, although I was not technically in a legal role. Uh, I was working as a business person in the compliance and ethics unit. Um, that was a very interesting experience because that was really my first non-legal job. Uh, and so it was interesting in, in some sense, being the client of the lawyers as opposed to the lawyer. Um, and then this all happened. And, you know, I, I like to say you can never really plan for something like this. I certainly didn't plan for something like this. It's really like lightning striking. The best thing you can do is sort of be there when the lightning hits. Mm. Well, so I was wondering about that. Like, at what point in your legal career did you think about or start thinking about the possibility of becoming a judge? Or was it something that you hadn't really thought about until it became a possibility? And maybe to the extent you can talk about it, like, how did that happen? Like, what was the process that led to you being nominated for, for a judgeship? So I had never really thought about being a judge um, until I was Solicitor General in Arkansas. Um, now, I've always been involved generally in public policy, in politics, in, in government, uh, public service, whatever, whatever euphemism you would like to use. Uh, I, I've always been involved and interested in leading and helping and serving. Um, but I really never sort of thought of the route to being a judge or thought about being a judge until um, uh, I was serving as the state solicitor general and I ended up interacting with a very large number of judges, which I had done before, but much more as a kind of younger person wanting a, a mentor as opposed to really a sort of advocate and, and colleague. Um, and that's when it, it sort of dawned on me a, how interesting and important a job being a judge could be, um, and B, that I might be sort of in the right place at the right time, or at least I was among the group of people that might be in the right place at the right time for this to actually work out. I, I will tell you, and this is all 2020 hindsight, right? This is sort of looking backwards. I think if there was some kind of lesson, it would be that people could draw from my experience. It's to do things you're passionate about and enjoy doing, and not so much to really try to chart a course or plan a course. Now, you know, that's not true at the extremes. All of this has to be in moderation. But I never really thought of how do I get from point A to point B? I more thought of what skills do I want to develop, what interests me uh, work-wise. And, and you, of course, make you know compromises. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, I'm not a huge fan of the billable hour. So I, I, I didn't absolutely love being in a big law firm, but I knew I wanted to do that because I wanted to get the skills, and I did. I mean, I'll, I'll forever be grateful for Kirkland & Ellis for teaching me how to really be a lawyer. So uh, that's a long way of answering your question, which is I did not really think of myself as a judge until or as, as even being able to be a judge until relatively shortly ago. 
Well, so to the extent you can talk about it, um, I wonder if you could say something about the process of getting nominated and the confirmation process uh, that you went through before uh, becoming a federal judge. What was the experience like? Sort of what led up to it? And, and yeah. what, 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 what do you think about that whole process from the perspective of where you are now? I, I'm happy to talk about it as, as much as I think is, is appropriate. Um, the first thing I'll say, which is a disclaimer, is I have the sense that this process is very different depending on A, who is in the White House. And I don't just mean by party. I even mean within the party, right? How, how each different White House sets up their process. Uh, I, I know just from friends that the way the process was set up under uh, George W. Bush was very different from how the process was set up under Donald Trump. But it was also different from the process how it was set up under, for example, President Reagan. So, uh, you know, even intra-party, I think it depends significantly who's in the White House and how they want to work things. Um, it also, I think, significantly depends on what state you're in and how your senators, uh, A, deal with each other, B, do they have a formal process or a more informal process? Uh, of course, are they of the same party or are they of different parties? That obviously affects things as well. For me, the way this happened is uh, when an opening occurred, um, I actually thought that a good friend of mine was the right person for the job. And so originally, I actually did not even sort of throw my hat in the ring. Or if I did, it was only to sort of say, look, this is an interesting thing to me, but I think this other person is probably for a number of reasons the, the right person at this point. Um, th that ended up not working out for him. And so uh, I, I sort of said, look, if it's not going to be him, I, I do think I have something to offer and I'd like to be considered. Um, I, the way it worked in Arkansas is uh, we went through a committee. Um, the senators set up a three-person committee. Um, they interviewed some folks uh, in terms of who the committee recommended and how that kind of worked, I'm not really sure of all of that. Um, but ultimately, my name got to the senators. Um, and I, and I uh, knew Senator Cotton fairly well. Uh, we didn't go to law school together, but we sort of were close enough in years that our friends kind of overlapped, his younger friends and my older friends sort of overlap. I didn't know him well, but I, but I knew enough of him. And, and I had um, helped out a little bit in 2014 um, on his campaign, not officially, but just sort of helped where I could. Um, but I didn't know Senator Bozeman very well. Uh, I got to know Senator Bozeman through that process, this process, which is great. And I'm excited. I did. He is a super, super guy. Uh, very, very loyal to Arkansas, kind of what you would think of as a as an old school, you know, uh, local hero senator. Um, and Senator Cotton uh, is a, I think, as everybody knows, a really sort of passionate, service oriented, um, uh, you know, serious guy. And so they seem to work well together in, in the process. Um, so my name ended up going from them to the White House. 
um, I, I can't remember whether it was my name or my name plus other people uh, or things like that. But, but ultimately, I got an interview. And at those interviews, which are, quite frankly, probably the most stressful thing you will ever go through, or at least the most stressful thing I ever went through, um, the White House Counsel's Office and the Department of Justice lawyers uh, really put you through a grilling, not on like particular cases, but really on, you know, just talking about the law in general. And you have to really know your stuff because it can become very evident very quickly if you uh, if your sort of knowledge base is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Um, and so we had a conversation uh, and it, in the old executive office building, which it's interesting. I, I had clerked there one summer and this was really my first time back. Very different coming back, trying to ace an interview. Um, so ultimately time went by and then I found out that I was going to be the nominee or, or potentially going to be the nominee. And then we started the process of doing the background check and uh, I'll stop there. If you want to talk about the background check, we could, but that's kind of the run up to how this all shook out. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that would be certainly interesting, like what the, that background check experience is like from the perspective of the nominee. And also, and I guess I'm really fascinated to know, like, what's it like to be sitting before the Senate, like, in a confirmation process. So, so let me take them backwards because the, the Senate question I think is very interesting. Um, first of all, it is fairly intimidating. I mean, just spatially, and it's set up that way, right? Spatially, you're, you're sort of lower than the senators. The senators are up on the dais. They're sort of pe- peering over at you. Um, I, I would say that it feels, it, it in some sense feels historic. If you stop and you think about it, you know, the senators really do have an obligation to ask you tough questions. And none of, look, none of us want to get asked tough questions or questions we feel are unfair or, or anything like that, but they have that obligation. And how they choose to exercise their advising consent role is up to them. So, I guess I had the feeling in some sense, this is going to sound silly, but it was cool. It was great to be part of, of this process. Um, you know, some of my answers, they were more happy with than others. Some of my answers got some pushback, but, but that's kind of life. Um, and, and I have the sense from talking to other nominees that, that other nominees feel that way too. Are, are there sometimes hurt feelings or there's yeah, for, for a little bit, but ultimately everybody who ends up with a job like mine gets it that the Senate has a responsibility to do what the Senate's going to do. And it's important. Um, I'd say as a practical matter, the, the most difficult thing is making sure that when there, cause there was a group of five of us, right. It wasn't just me. So uh, you know, when, when the senators are really engaging in conversation with somebody else, it's sort of somewhat easy to sit back and start looking around and just thinking about things, but you got to be very careful because two seconds later, they could cut that person off and, and flip to you. And uh, thankfully I avoided that problem, but anyway, so that's the, that's the Senate part of it. Um, In terms of the background check, 
Here's what I will say that I that I did not realize. I mean, the Senate questionnaire asks for a gargantuan amount of information. I think it took me somewhere between a month and three months to get all of that information. And some of the issues were, I mean, there were, you know, articles that I wrote uh, for the school newspaper, right, at Cornell, where I went undergrad, uh, the school newspaper that they were in the middle of putting them online, but the university had put online everything basically three years before me and then like everything after the time I was there. And so I had to have students go and literally go to the archives and find all of the, all of these things. And, you know, that's kind of a heart attack moment, right? Because you never want to not give everything to the Senate and it's really hard to explain, right? If they find something that you haven't given them, you're, you're like, well, okay. Like I, I tried to find all of this stuff. So I spent, I mean, hours, days, weeks, making sure that we got everything. Uh, I, I will say if I had known back then what I know now, uh, I might not have written as many things or appeared on as many podcasts. You're, you're, you're the only, you're the second thing or third thing I've done since I've become a judge, just because I don't want to have to keep track of all of it. <laughs> okay. Well, so maybe we could talk a little bit about your experience of becoming a judge. I mean, like what was the, the learning curve? Like were, were there things from your previous career that you found really helpful in that process? And were there any things you found particularly challenging? Let, let me start with the challenging thing. Uh, and, and I should say, I find this job very challenging. I love this job. It is a great job. I am extraordinarily happy to do it. I, I'm happy that maybe, hopefully, I can do it well and, and add something to people's lives. Um, on the extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging front, uh, the hardest thing we do, and I think you'd hear this from a lot of district court judges, is sentencing people. Um, to have someone sit in front of you uh, and know, and look, in every case, we're changing people's lives, but to have them sit in front of you and know that you are deciding whether and for how long their freedom is going to be forfeited to the state um, and obviously, sometimes it's even more serious than that. I mean, I have not had a, I, I have not had somebody in front of me on murder charges, so I'm not even going to go there. Um, but in terms of taking somebody's liberty away, uh, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And anybody who's being honest, I think, understands that while we all try to come up with the exact right number that is necessary, but no more than sufficient to get at all the factors in the sentencing statute. Uh, it is very hard to feel like we are doing sort of something much more than making an educated guess. And that is scary. It's scary to us. It's certainly scary to me. Uh, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of power to have. And the only, the only reason I have it is because I've been sort of selected for this and confirmed by the Senate, but I don't have any special insight that, you know, another person doesn't share on it. So, so that's it. I spend a lot of time and I lose a lot of sleep on that. Even, even when we're talking about, you know, within the guidelines, if there's a six month difference or a year difference, 
that's still a lot of time out of somebody's life. So that that's hard for me. Um, I, I will say that actually sort of feeds into uh, one of the things that I was happy about uh, coming to the job with some knowledge in. Uh, obviously, my my career was sort of civil heavy. Uh, and I think it is very hard to be a district court judge without having a good grounding in criminal law. And I was very happy that my work as solicitor general exposed me to a bunch of criminal law issues. I, I know habeas, we could talk about whether or not it's technically criminal law or civil, but for, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to lump it in with the criminal stuff. Um, I, I got some good experience with habeas work. And while I would have liked to have more criminal experience before coming to the bench, I think I had enough that it helped me sort of run up the hill, um, which I hope I'm now at least three quarters of the way up. Well, so what about the process of like doing the actual judging and then sitting down and, and writing an opinion? Like, how do you approach that? Um, is the experience like what you expected or were there aspects of it that you sort of didn't necessarily expect or kind of ways in which doing the job changed your perspective on what the job was like and sort of what's what's your kind of philosophy as it were of doing the job of judging as informed by the time that you've been on the bench so far so so here's Here's, I guess, what I will say I was not ready for or I did not fully appreciate. Um, with respect to my bosses up at the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, they get a lot more time, I think, to devote to particular legal issues. They can really bear down on you know, some arcane legal issue that is very important, but also that would require, you know, spending days with the case law, wrestling with it, spending days figuring out what the original understanding of a particular provision of the Constitution is, going back to primary sources. They also have the benefit that in a good number of cases, there are a lot of, or there, at least at the Supreme Court and, and some at the circuit court, there are some good amicus briefs if there are sort of meaty issues of either originalism or textualism. Um, I think the difference in terms of being a district court judge that I was not ready for is it is much more about keeping the trains running on time. Um, now, obviously, you need to be careful and you need to make sure that you come to the right conclusion. And once you come to the right conclusion, you need to make sure that you write opinions in ways that people can understand. Both the litigants in the case can understand why you're doing something. And also lawyers who later on appear before you can understand your thinking on particular issues. Um, but in the balance between sort of doing the 100% absolute best opinion you could do and making sure you have enough time to deal with the other 350 cases or 400 cases on your docket, uh, I think you have to make sure the trains run on time. Litigants need decisions. They need you to make the best call you can make, but uh, you can't let the sort of good or the perfect be the enemy of the good. So I... I make decisions a lot faster than I necessarily would want to. 
And it's taken me a little while to become comfortable with that and to not then second guess myself. Now, I I will say where I have found that I can shave some time is I spend more time making sure on the front end that I'm getting the decision right and less time making sure that the opinion is perfect. Uh, Having the opinion perfect would be very nice. And yes, I sign my name to it and I want people to know. But look, first of all, you want litigants to know you care. And I do. And you certainly want other people to look in and say, oh, that's a very smart, good, well-written opinion. But on the other hand, it's more important that I get the application of the law right for the parties and and less important that I write something that somebody's going to cite 10 years from now. Uh, that's, I think, the flip of the circuit court and the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Well, so what about what about when it comes to advocates? So, you know, when you see people who are appearing before you or submitting uh, briefs to the court, like what do you as a judge find most helpful that advocates do? Are there things that advocates can aim for that would make your job easier or that would be kind of helpful to them kind of making their case to you? And maybe are there occasionally things that are not so helpful? Well, I'll start with the not so helpful things. And I should say these are actually relatively rare experiences. On the whole, I have been I've been pleased by the the level of competence and work product from attorneys. But let me start with the not helpful. Uh, I think sometimes and I'm sure I'm sure when I was a younger lawyer, uh, like every other lawyer who's learning, you sometimes fall into this. I think sometimes lawyers don't don't understand that zealous advocacy doesn't necessarily mean fighting about every little thing and uh, almost sort of no holds barred fighting death grip style. Um, It's very difficult uh, to get to the sort of substance of a case when everybody's fighting about the motion to extend on the motion to strike on, on the, you know, the motion to amend. And, And that becomes a little bit, tiresome and tedious. Now, again, that's that's the exception. It's not the rule. But I think you really want to avoid that. And I think people gain a lot of credibility when they are bending where they can, both to be nice to um, their colleagues on the other side, also to be respectful of the court, but also it shows good advocacy, right? You know what's important and what's, and what's not. Um, so that's number one. Uh, in terms of sort of great things that lawyers have done, uh, I have seen a couple of briefs that are short, succinct, and to the point. And when I say short, I don't mean three pages. You know, I mean, instead of a 30-page brief, it's a 10-page brief, and it, it tells you exactly what you need to know. Uh, it generally, These briefs are really good because they tell you the one or two Eighth Circuit cases that are just dead on point. And when I get a brief like that in, which has 10 pages and goes right to the heart of the issue, I tend to suspect, although I, of course, verify that they're pretty confident in their position that the Eighth Circuit case is controlling on me. And there's there's, you know, not much way that the other side can get out of it. And then what I end up seeing from the other side tends to be a 30-page, uh, you know, uh, a 30-page brief that starts with 
why the Eighth Circuit cases are a little bit distinguishable, and then spends a whole lot of time citing out-of-circuit district courts or out-of-circuit appeals courts, uh, you know, and sort of tries to concoct a, a narrative from that. And again, that might be, given their case, the best they can do in terms of zealous advocacy. But when you have those two briefs, of course, you check the law, but you also tend to get a feeling for who's probably going to be right. And over time, that has proved, again, there are exceptions, but that has proved correct. I I will say one thing. Um, I think at the district court level, there, there may be less of an emphasis in for for many parties in trying to figure out who the judge is, what makes them tick, and, and how they sort of approach judging. And now that may be an Arkansas-centric thing, and I'm sure it's probably different uh, in some district courts across the country, but I don't think there's as much of sort of the judge-driven uh, understanding of things to argue, and I think that's a big miss. Uh, for example, I'll just tell you, I think a lot of the briefs I've seen, they either don't make textualist arguments or if they make textualist arguments, they make them at the very sort of highest superficial level when there's a really good textualist argument on both sides. I mean, one thing I will say is it's clear if you're doing textualism right in in a lot of situations, it's not as easy as people think. And there are fair arguments on on both sides. Doesn't mean the statute's ambiguous, just means there are fair arguments on both sides. But I don't I, I don't often see briefs that really do that well. Mm-hmm. Well, so one thing is that I've always wondered as as a law professor for a long time now is, you know, like we're so siloed in one area. So I spend all my time thinking about one really narrow area of law and I have lots of opinions about it. But you as a judge, I mean, you get confronted with with so many different kinds of questions that you might not ever have even had an opportunity to think about before. Sort of what's that like? And are there things that attorneys or advocates can do to sort of help you out to sort of understand areas of law that, you know, you are looking at maybe for the first time? Let's do the, the what it's like first. Um, one big learning since I've come to the bench is sort of how to deal with cases when they come in the door. Uh, and this is sort of inside baseball, but, you know, judges deal with their chambers in various different ways. What I used to do is if the number ended with a one to a four, I gave it to one clerk. If it was five to seven, I gave it to another. And if it was eight to zero, you know, eight, nine and zero, I gave to another. Um, I have changed that. And when I should say, I gave it to him and I said, look, when motions come in, work them up. And actually, Brian, you'll you'll appreciate this. Uh, I started with the sort of Judge Kleinfeld idea of make me a big binder with all the case, you know, with all the cases um, and, and give me a memo on sort of what you think uh, is the right way to resolve this. And then I'll look at it. That all took way too long. That, I mean, it was a good process, but it just took too long, given the number of cases we have. What I have started doing is um, as cases come in the door and particularly as motions get filed, I will take all of them and put them on my desk. 
I will review them. If it's something I think I can handle very quickly, I'll just handle it. And that happens with a lot. If it's something that I think I know the answer on, either because I've dealt with it in another case, or it's something that I just don't think there's a real difficult issue on, I will write a note to one of my law clerks and say, hey, let's just do it this way. Go, go, you know, go figure out the way to write it. But this is the right answer. And this is the reason why, you know, it'll be like a paragraph. I'll give maybe four sentences of what my thinking is. And they'll turn that into to something. And then I'll see the draft. Um, on the other hand, there are probably, I would say, maybe a third of the motions I get that I'd say, look, this is a real meaty issue. And Maybe I have some kind of inkling about where it's going to go, but I haven't dealt with enough of them. Or I'll tell you for me, or it's like something to do with patent and intellectual property or antitrust. And I, I just don't really trust myself at that at this point yet that, that I know enough, you know, anything more than to be dangerous. And so on those, I will give it to the clerks and I will ask them to do a sort of Judge Kleinfeld style binder with all the briefs, all the cases other cases they've found, and a detailed memo that doesn't just talk about specifically about the case, but also sort of broader about that area of law, because I kind of use it as a way to learn. And I figure that that'll have a marginal benefit going forward. Once I sort of know fully that particular area of law, you never know any area fully. But uh, once I feel like I'm competent enough in it, it, it can start going into the pile of making decisions quicker. So to the extent you can, I wonder if you could talk about the process of actually writing an opinion. Like, how do you work with your clerks to produce the opinion? Sort of what do you ask them to do? What aspects do you feel are really important to take on yourself? And, you know, whatever else you think is worth uh, sharing with people about that process. So I have so far not settled on one particular way of doing things. Um, it, I think it in some sense depends on the case, right? I, I, I don't think it's really good in a situation like this to kind of have a, a standard rule and just sort of follow it for purposes of following it. Uh, there are cases where I feel like what I'm going to say is sort of needs to be said in my words and and sort of what I'm thinking turns on sort of such a small distinction of either Eighth Circuit case law or common law or anything else um, that I actually just write it. Uh, I'll, I'll leave all the footnotes out and I'll have the clerks enter in all the footnotes and make sure that it's supported the way I need it to be supported. Um, that's one concept. Uh, the other way I do it is uh, I will just sit with my clerk. I will sort of give them a download for about maybe 20 minutes of what's in my brain on a particular case. And then I will have them take a first shot at drafting it based on what we've discussed. And I'll edit it and send it back to them. Um, I will say I tend to have a very, like, social process. I, I am not a sit at the keyboard and have them send me an email and I'll send them an email back or just do red lines. I mean, we come back and forth in the office all the time and talk about things. Uh, all of my clerks are empowered on a moment's notice to come into my, you know, into my chambers and just say, hey, I'm in the middle of writing this. 
I know we talked about it this way, but I've looked at the case law and either I have this problem or I don't think this makes sense or I don't think this is the way the Eighth Circuit has told us to go. Um, and so we write it like that. I guess one thing I will say um, that I am trying to figure out currently if I should keep or not is we have an extensive editing process in the office. Um, once something is done, and these are for bigger motions, not for little stuff. Once something is done in the sense of a finalized draft, uh, the clerk who worked on it sends it to a second clerk to do a full site check. And then to a third, once that's done, to a third clerk to do a grammar, what I call sort of a grammar and crazy check, which is A, is all the grammar and style right, but B, having not known anything about the case, like, does this raise some kind of red flag for you, either in what we've decided, why we've decided it, or honestly, how we say things. I, I mean, you know, some... I, I'll just be honest. We, we were dealing with a, uh, a civil case where somebody had died. And I, I think at one point, I, I, I forget what word I used, um, but it was a it was a word that evoked death. I didn't mean to. It wasn't, you know, I, I, and somebody reading it just said, hey, this is probably just an insensitive way to write it. And they were absolutely right. Um, the downside, of course, is that is a lengthy process and it gums up uh, some other work. Um, so I've been trying to figure out how we can keep that process, but trim it a little bit. Well, so because we're talking about law clerks, I wonder if you could say a little something for law students out there who might potentially be thinking about applying for clerkships, about sort of what you look for in a potential clerk? What makes candidates stand out or look particularly attractive to you? What you think they might be able to do to kind of prepare for the job to be more effective? And also like once they're on the job, what can they do that makes them most useful and helpful to you as a judge? Okay, so I will say a couple of things, but I will add a disclaimer, which is I think many judges are really different. Um, from each other, not just from me, but, uh, you know, so I don't know what I say necessarily carries over to any other judges. And if it does carry over to some, I don't really know a good way to figure out which judges it carries over to. Um, I will first talk about uh, a sort of particular hobby horse of mine, um, which is you would be amazingly surprised at the number of excellent applications I get. And when I say excellent, I mean their resume is good, their work experience is good, their, their transcript is good, it shows somebody who, who you know, applies themselves and is smart, and either or both of their cover letters or their writing samples have a good number of errors in them. Grammatical errors, you know, spelling errors, style errors, and not, not like this is maybe an error or I would do something differently, but clearly errors, right? Like wrong face captions, you know, um, commas instead of, a, instead of a period, misspelled words. Um, and on the one hand, you say, look, okay, in a 20-page or 50-page application, to have one error, that, that's fine, right? I mean, we're all human. Um, 
But the problem is, and what I have sort of figured out is this is supposed to be the best foot forward, right? These, these people have sort of the most amount of time to make sure this is polished to send this to you. And it's supposed to be a really big deal in their lives. And so if, if what they're sending you is not polished, you all, you, you're pretty sure that's the high watermark. Um, or at least it would take a lot more work to get them past that. So I will say, at least for me, the first thing I do when I get applications in is I have my clerks look at them. And if they have uh, anything more than one or two errors, I mean, you know, again, we're talking about real errors. We're not talking about something people can debate about. If they have more than one or two errors, I basically take them and put them on the sort of bigger pile, right, which I don't necessarily go to unless I get through with my short pile and still haven't found people. So that, that's number one. Um, number two, I guess, generally, I will tell you, I look for good grades. Um, I look for varied experiences. Um, and, and by that, I mean things like, you know, uh, if they do volunteer work, uh, and I'm talking about legal work, volunteer work, if they've been in the military, if they've, you know, worked in sort of international places, I, th- that that kind of stuff interests me. It shows somebody who's well-rounded and is willing to do things that they are passionate about. But again, that may be just me. Um, good grades. I will say a relatively good school. I, I am not... Um, I'm not wedded to hiring from the Ivy League. Um, Most of my clerks actually do not come from Ivy League law schools. Um, I think you can find good lawyers anywhere. Um, What I will say is, if you are sort of from a lower-tiered law school, I really expect your grades to be high. Um, And, you know, that's just, to be honest, it's sort of the – if I make a mistake and hire somebody who maybe objectively I shouldn't hire, uh, it tends to be a smaller mistake if you're at a better law school and it could be a bigger mistake if, if you're not. Um, but I will say, right. Some of my best clerks, uh, both who I have in the office now and who I know I've hired and I've interacted with them for, for years to come uh, are from law schools that are well out of the top tier. Um, so I think as long as you've kept your grades up, taken hard classes and, and, and done your best and it shows, uh, I don't think necessarily where you go to school uh, matters to me a whole heck of a lot. Um, here's uh, moving over to your question uh, about sort of what you can do in the clerkship. And, and I'll tell you this is sort of both what you can show the judge beforehand and what you can do in the clerkship. My view has always been that no matter where you are, if you are going to be a good lawyer, it takes hours and hours and hours of working at it. Um, Look, yes, we all want everybody to be well-rounded and it's important in order to be a good lawyer that you're a good person. And so you have experiences outside just sort of the narrow field of law but I don't think we should sort of kid ourselves. Being a lawyer, if you're going to be a good one, requires a lot of work. So to me, knowing that people are putting in that amount of work is important. I put in that amount of work. I think it's important that we do that to serve the pe- people you know, 
whose lives we're affecting. I mean, we're, we're here not to just sort of have fun, right? We're, we're here to actually do a job and that, that's, a, that's a serious job and that people are counting on. Um, and yes, we're a very small cog in the wheel and there are lots of other people who do things that are much more important than us. But for the people who come before us, this is either life and death literally or life and death figuratively for them. Um, and so I, I, and when I say demand, I don't mean I demand it. I just, my chambers tends to demand doing a lot of work, being around a lot, although the pandemic is an ex- is sort of a, a, a change from that. But uh, I think you have to show that you apply yourself and you're willing to put in the hours. Well, so Lee, in closing, one question I really have for you that I'd love to hear more about to the extent you're willing to share is that now that you've been in the job for a while and you have a sense of what it's like to be a federal judge, sort of what aspirations do you have for yourself going forward as a judge in relation to doing your job? In other words, sort of like, where do you want to be in the future in this job? What, what kind of judge do you want to be? That's a good question, Brian. Um, I think my aspiration is to, A, continue to give this thing my all for however long I get to be in this role. Um, You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, um, but it has been in some sense a sprint to sort of get up the hill at the beginning. Uh, And over the long term, I could certainly see you saying, uh, not you, me, saying, oh, I've seen this case before. I kind of I kind of know where this is going. Oh, I've seen, you know, I've seen somebody who's done this kind of criminal offense and has generally the same history as this person. I don't really need to think about it as hard as I think about it. My, my aspiration is that I never give in to that. Um, and I think you have to be aware that it's a risk in order to fight it. Um, because, again, what's important now to people who are coming before me are going to be important to different people coming before me in 10 years or 15 years. And they deserve just as much of me thinking about issues as the people who are coming before me now. So that that's one aspiration. Um, Another aspiration is to be able to get to a place where everybody coming before me, when they ask their colleagues, what do I need to know about Judge Rudofsky? I want the answer to be, he's careful, he's fair, he'll listen to both sides of the argument, he's going to ask some hard and tough questions of both sides, but ultimately he is going to get his hands around what's going on and he's going to try his best to get to the right answer under the law. I, I think I'm there with a lot of people. I just haven't had the, the experience of everybody in the community being in front of me yet. Um, and obviously, you know, it's easy for folks to say that when they win. Um, but 10, 15 years from now, all these repeat players will 
hopefully, if, if I'm assuming I'm as fair of a judge as I want to be and think I am, hopefully sometimes these people will win, sometimes they'll lose. And so I hope in, you know, 20 years, uh, that's the comment that, that comes from people. I think everybody understandably gets a little nervous when there's a new judge, right? They don't, they don't know him or her, that, or, or if they know him or her, they, they don't really know what they're necessarily going to be like on the bench. Um, and then the other, I guess the last thing I'll say is I, I don't want this job to change me in terms of becoming less social and less less sort of with people in the community. Um, I think there's a danger in a job like this of getting isolated. And in some sense, you can understand some good reasons for it, right? You need to have some distance in, in order to make sure, A, you're fair, and B, people perceive you as being fair. Um, but I think it's really important to also think of yourself as a leader and hopefully a good role model in the community. And so I don't just want people to, I do want people to say he's a good judge, but I don't just want people to say he's a good judge. I want people and my neighbors and, and uh, people who are maybe not my neighbors, but part of the community um, and part of the bigger sort of Arkansas state to say, that's a good person. Yeah. He's a federal judge, but uh, you know, he could also be the guy down the street who I'm sharing a beer with or in a crisis, he'll always help. Those kind of things are important to me. Well, Lee, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to do this interview. I I really appreciate it. Um, I learned a lot and uh, it was great to be able to talk with you about all of the incredible new experiences you've had. It is good to see you, Brian. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.